Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. Paul wrote this letter in anticipation or before his trip to Rome. And just to spoil the sermon just a tad bit, um, the church in Rome contained Jews and a number of Gentiles, so just keep this in mind when you're reading along with me on page 947 in your pew Bibles. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be aware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity once again to come to your word. And nothing's spoiled, and everything is fresh and new. And Lord, please make that be true today. When we come to your word, that it would, we'd see it with fresh eyes and hear it with open ears. And Lord, even a text that uh, is complex Lord, may you please, by your Holy Spirit, uh, shape and guide us, and Lord, then bring application and fruitfulness in our lives out of this word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul's primary theme in Romans is the basic gospel, God's plan for salvation and righteousness for all peoples, all peoples meaning all Jews and Gentiles alike. And as Liz mentioned, he wrote uh, to introduce himself before his visit to uh, the house churches in Rome on his way on a mission to Spain. He wrote to explain how one is saved. And we studied with great interest justification by faith through grace to the churches there, the house church in Rome. And he sought to describe the relationship that he expected between Jewish believers and Gentile believers as part of God's overall plan of redemption. As we get into the practical application section of, of Romans this spring, we'll read that Jewish Christians were being rejected by the larger Gentile group in the church because the Jewish Christians, those coming out of Judaism, still felt constrained to observe dietary laws and, and special sacred days. We'll study that in, in Romans chapter 14. 
And Paul will have none of that. He'll have none of that. The theological theme that we've covered from chapters 1 all the way through 11, chapter 11 in the letter, is the gospel of God's righteousness. But the practical themes that will outwork of that are three in number that I can count. Number one, purity in thought. Paul wants Christians in Rome to think clearly and with a pure, clean mind. We are to worship God with all of our being, and we start with our minds. So he wants, he says again and again, I want you to understand, I want you to know what the gospel is. And the second theme is unity. He wants the church to be unified. There shouldn't be this great division between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They should understand that they are one. We talked about this last week, that they are all part of one vine, one root, one church, one body. And the third theme out of that uh, in response is humility. That we are to be humble. There should be a humility among Christians as we glorify God. And this from Romans 15, another spoiler to, to tell you where we'll be in a few months. Uh, that quote, with one mind, with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So all the themes are there. Purity in thought, unity, humidity, humility, and the glory of God. Now we're just about finished with this major section of, of theology. Paul is unwrapping this theology that we've been studying in Romans chapter 9 to chapter 11. And next week we'll conclude with this great doxology. You can read that on your own. Uh, and then the application, chapters 12 to 16, we'll be studying those after Easter. But chapter 9 to 11, he's talking about God's purposes in redemption history, this great mystery revealed. And we pick up his line of thought here uh, in the passage. I'm going to read it again to you in the NIV version, which might be a little bit more clear, those first verses, chapter 25 and following. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. This partial hardening has come in part until the full number of Gentiles is saved, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Don't miss what God is doing, Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight. Now the mystery that he's referring to, it's not like a, a Sherlock Holmes mystery where you look at forensic evidence and you try to deduce what's going on. It's not a religious secret information that only the higher-ups know, and if you pay $19.99 a month, maybe you'll be lit in on this big secret as well. Mystery defined in the Bible is revelation of God, something unknown until God makes it known. So in a way, it's, it's an open secret now. Before God revealed it, we didn't have a clue. And then miracle upon miracle, this revelation comes, and this mystery, this thing that's hard to understand and comprehend, is made clear. And here again, the three, verse, the three themes are prevalent that we're going to look at uh, in the near future. That there's a direct link between how we think and what we think about God and how we relate with one another and what our attitude 
should be. Paul says, I do not want you to be conceited. Or in the ESV, I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. But we do this, don't we? We think ourselves wise when we rely on our own way of thinking, our own mindset, instead of looking to God's word first and foremost. And the Bible teaches if you do this, it says, do not deceive yourselves. So there's a sense of deception, but then Paul adds that that self-deception leads to the sin of pride, not humility. Rightly understanding the historical process of how God saves Gentiles and Jews, it undercuts pride. There's no leg to stand on. The ground at the foot of the cross is level for everyone. No one has a leg up. No one has anything that they can bring and say, I was in line before you. No, none of that. And the theology supporting that, Paul writes, is that this, that this hardening of some of the Jews we've been talking about the past couple of weeks, Paul, his mind is opened by the Holy Spirit to realize that this hardening has opened the door, there's me opening the door, has opened the door so that Gentiles can now come in. Gentiles can come and experience the promises and the gifts and the grace of God through the covenant God has made. And that's the big revelation that he says. He says that door will stand open until all of God's people come in. The scripture is clear that God is the architect of history. That is our worldview. As Christians, when we look at the world, it's shaped by God's word and by the world around us, and we say, God is the architect of history. The time does not move meaningless, meaning, meaninglessly, or pronouncing meaninglessly, forward by means of chance, The time is not endless. It's not a repeating cycle. No, we we understand that history flows in a linear direction toward a goal. The history can certainly seem that it repeats itself at times, as we're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, What I saw this past week reminded me of the black and white footage of the 60s of what happened in Ukraine and Czechoslovakia. History can seem to repeat itself But even then, the Bible says that it is ordained by the Lord for his purposes and for his telos, his goal. That God has designed and guides history. Why? Because then in the end, it will fully display his glory and the reliability of his promises and the magnificence of his mercy. And in so doing, it will prevent human pride and will produce grateful worship. We can say, Lord, we don't know exactly what's coming, but we know the future is in your hands. It makes us humble instead of prideful to know what we can predict what's coming. That's the mystery revealed. So Paul's saying that history, the story of Israel, is not over yet. The Lord has ordered history to accomplish his purposes and bring his plan for his people to pass. And so Israel is partially, not entirely, but partially hardened. We've been talking about that these past few weeks. What does that hardening look like? It's a, 
It's a rigid, stiff, spiritual hardening. No, I'm not, I'm not going to change my mind. You can't make me. And that rigid hardness hardened them to the reception of their Messiah. They said, there's no way this Jesus of Nazareth could be the Messiah. They were hardened. Paul says, this has happened until, quote, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I take that to mean till the gospel spreads to every people and tongue and tribe and all the peoples of the earth are represented in the church, the bride of Christ. And then, Paul says, that hardening will be lifted and there will be a great and final move of evangelism will take place. He says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, what does that mean, all Israel will be saved? And there are a number of views that have merit making sense of that, but I'm going to go with old John Calvin, who says, all Israel refers to the total number of the elect throughout history, all those who are ultimately saved, both Jews and Gentiles. No one thinks this means every single individual person of Jewish ancestry, but making sense of that, John Calvin and many others say, this, looks, this is looking out to history of all of God's people from all of the lands of the world. So not the entire nation of Israel. Remember, in ancient times, there was no such thing as a nation state as we know today. Borders were fluid. They were based on tribes and, and people groups. Even today, as an example, the Kurdish people, when you think of the Kurdish people, you might think, well, that's a group of people that live in northern Iraq. But the Kurdish people are in northern Iraq and Turkey and Syria. They don't recognize the arbitrary borders that were created in the past hundred years. And the same in the Ukraine. We see all this unrest in, in Ukraine. It's because Ukraine... 42 million people of Ukraine. In the West, that's West for you, right? In the West, Ukrainians uh, have adapted and are feel more accustomed to and connected with a Western European outlook on life, whereas in the East, they're more comfortable and cozy with the old Soviet connections that they have. And so that's where the conflict comes from. So not every single individual Jewish person or Israeli citizen, but the whole number of the elect out of the ancient covenant people at the end of history before the coming of Jesus. And that day is coming when the gospel is preached to all the world. And we will see more and more people from all over the world, including Jewish ancestry, come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Did you know there have been more Jewish converts to Christianity in the 20th century than all the previous 19 centuries combined? And even when you think of friends of yours who are secular Jews and you think, well, this person will never even come back to their own religion, let alone some new religion, Jews for Jesus as a movement is seeing more and more inroads and opportunities to connect with and be in relationship with their kinsmen. And when that happens, God's purposes for Israel will be complete and fulfilled. Look at verse 29. 
The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's working through this. He says they've been made enemies so that you can come in and then things will shift. He says this will happen. So there is a spiritual Israel, the remnant of God's chosen, called to be one root, one vine, one church, a mystery above mysteries. There will be ahead of us a great push of evangelism the world over, such as we've never seen, especially among people of Jewish ancestry. Now, how is this going to happen? I don't know. And I'm already way out on a limb, like the squirrels that are trying to get into our or bird feeder, and you're hanging upside down. I'm all way, already way out there into eschatology, future end times type study that maybe we'll cover that and we'll look at Revelation at another time. But Paul is pointing to the future second coming of Christ. Look at verses 26 to 27. This is a composite of the Old Testament prophecies and kind of bringing them together, saying the deliverer, will come from Zion, meaning the heavenly Jerusalem. The deliverer is Jesus, and he is coming. And what's he going to do? What's he going to do when he comes for you? What's he going to do? I just want to make sure you're still listening. (laughs) What's he going to do? Well, look, look what it says. He's going to banish unrighteousness from Jacob. Jacob is God's people. He's going to take away their sins. That's promised. There's going to be a day where we don't have a prayer of confession because everything's going to be confessed and we'll be one in Christ through the covenant of grace. How can we know that this is going to happen even though we don't know how it's going to happen? Because God has said in his word, both the incarnate word of Christ and the written word of God, that it will come to pass and the future is in God's hands, and the promises are irrevocable. That is the ground on which we stand. The future is in God's hands. God's designs on history are irreversible. When the Lord exercises his redeeming call on someone, that plan is final. There are no take-backs. He's got a hold of your child, and that child grows up and walks away from the church. God's plan will be seen to the end. Romans, uh, again, 11, verses 30 to 32. This summarizes the astonishing way God's designs on history, displaying his mercy, removing any doubt and any pride for us, how it's going to happen. And as a precursor to next week, Paul's only response is worship. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What's he saying? He's saying this mystery is is too much. I've got to stop trying to explain it, and I just need to raise my hands in worship to the Lord. And the design is this. There's a period of disobedience for everybody, both Jews and Gentiles. And he says in verse 32 that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. there's, There's going to be this reality in heaven. Not one person, not one individual in heaven 
will be able to say, I was never disobedient. Every single person who's in heaven is going to be able to say, I'm a sinner delivered by the Savior. He's saying disobedience, falling short of the glory of God is universal. Salvation is not universal. Not every sinner will be saved, but every saved person will undoubtedly be a sinner. We all have that in common. The very scary thing is there are teachers out there, and especially in our own denomination, that get that mixed up. It's like crisscrossing wires in your house and you get 120 volts if you get that mixed up where they teach everyone is saved and nobody's a sinner. But that's clearly not what Scripture teaches. So what do we do with these mysteries? Do we say, yeah, we're right and you're wrong. Is that the attitude we're to have? Yeah, no. We ought to move, be moved to humble orthodoxy, relying on God's revelation, not being wise in our own estimation, but mindful and grateful and motivated to share the gospel with all peoples, Israeli and Palestinian and Ukrainian and Iranian and Chilean and, and whatever Indian that's out there to share the precious good news of Christ and to listen and to learn and to absorb and to smile and to embrace and then to go and bear witness to the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we should pray. Pray that the full number of Gentiles comes and that the hardening of Israel will be lifted. And we should work with missionaries who are bringing the good news all over the globe. And we should put away all pride and see that the mystery revealed that God is aiming to save by working through us, his witnesses, and that in our lifetime there will be widespread conversions. Even as the church in North America fades and gets smaller, and undoubtedly I think there'll be a day where uh, churches will become house churches like they were in Rome, and the church uh, in the global south uh, and east will rise and grow bigger and bigger. And believers, like we saw in that video that we're meeting in a little hidden shack, they will have countless numbers of Christians. And you and I will be meeting at Starbucks, maybe five or six of us huddled around God's word, wondering if people are listening in, what do they think? They probably think we're crazy. That's when we'll get back to being what the church was when Paul was writing to Rome. It's all in God's will. We are one family, one house, one olive tree, and God is bringing believing Jews and believing Gentiles together and making us into one family, one body, one people, one new kind of people. Let's pray. God, may that be the vision that guides us into the future and into this new century, that we are to be one body and one people and one new kind of people. Lord, be our vision of that great future that you have. Lord, help us to develop godly thoughts and actions through our surrender to the guidance of your word. Help us to be humble and united in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.
please take your hymnals and we'll be 